Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So there will always be others that see it differently, and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. It is clear that the communities and cultures that are coping best with this are those that spend a lot of time talking to young people about sex. My guest today, Dr. Patrick Tidmarsh, he's a world-renowned criminologist, forensic interview advisor and a drama therapist. He's trained police in understanding sexual offending and developing effective interview processes, and he's worked in the field of sexual offender treatment for over 20 years, including custodial and community offender treatments with adult and adolescent offenders. He's dealt with what most of us would consider to be the bottom rung of the lowest of low members of our community, sex offenders. He's delved into their psyche. He's treated them. He's sat and talked with them about their offending, why they offended, in order to rehabilitate them and educate them into changing their behaviour and understanding why they did what they did. Sex offenders aren't just men in long overcoats hanging around shopping centres or schools. They come from every corner of our society and are pillars of that society often. Today, 
we'll be talking mostly about men who offend, not ignoring the fact that women offend too, but the percentage is very low. Sex offenders weave their way into people's lives, gaining trust, admiration, and often become role models whose trust and judgment are never ever questioned. And why would it be? But under that exterior of kindness, sincerity and strength is a cunning, manipulative monster who preys on vulnerability. Patrick has recently released a book called The Whole Story, which we can all learn from. But I would suggest anyone considering entering the field of law, psychology and or therapy, particularly with an interest in crime, or anyone who's involved or will be involved investigating anything, go and grab a copy now. So thanks for your time today, Patrick, Uh, but there's not much else that we can do (laughs) in lockdown. Uh, You owe me big time because I'm saving you from at least an hour of homeschooling. (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly right, yes. I'm missing out on a story about a great white shark at the moment, but uh, here you go. Strange times when in one room you're talking about sex offenders uh, and in the other the, you're homeschooling. <laughs> There's so much I'd like to discuss with you today, Patrick, but I wanted to ask you firstly about the whole story concept. Can you explain why your book is called The Whole Story? Sure. Firstly, thanks for inviting me. Um, Yes, so it's called The Whole Story, uh, and the sort of subsection is Investigating Sexual Crime, Truth, Lies, and the Path to Justice. And the reason it's called that, there's sort of two main reasons. The first is when Mark Barnett and I were first employed by VicPol, after both of us had been out in treatment, our job was to look at the way sexual crime was being investigated and interviewing in particular and see if we could suggest any improvements. And one of the biggest things we found is not just in policing, but in the courts too, um, everything is focused on the acts because people get charged with acts. Um, And really what helps people understand sexual offending and improve their investigations of it is understanding the dynamics of sexually abusive relationships. I mean, as you know, talked about many times i suppose we should also say to your listeners you and i know each other well i first worked with you way back when when you were in was it the rape squad or the child exploitation squad i forget which i think the child exploitation squad yeah so so many years ago and so what you know from back then is except for those two squads vic paul didn't have a lot of expertise like most police forces and so there was lots of mis- and misconceptions particularly about victims behavior and there wasn't really an understanding of where the evidence was in crimes or what explained why victims did or didn't do what they did um there wasn't even really a model that started with offenders and as we all know offending starts with offenders they're the people uh who are driving these relationships and most people uh also as you know are offended by people they know so often that relationship is is a formed one a familial one or a friendship one and so on so what we did is set up a new uh concept and methodology for investigating crime that looked at the entire relationship and showed investigators where the evidence was. Uh, And what we found is not only did they say and do courts say it's more effective in presenting information, but we also found, and I think we're we're one of the first uh, police forces uh, in the world to not just show that training can change the attitudes of investigators, but it can be maintained after 12 months uh, being back out in the field. And and the attitudes we wanted to change most particularly were the victim-blaming ones. So it's called Whole Story because that's the name of the methodology that we introduced. Um, And also it's called Whole Story because I think a lot of people know that 
reporting has gone up perhaps they might also know that lots of cases don't get through to court they may also know that um conviction rates have actually gone down uh, in the last 10 20 years or so which is quite shocking in some ways but they might not know why um, they might not understand how the courts work through this or why these things get investigated and there was a woman also asked me at a conference a, a, a few years back she said she was forever in discussions with people about Me Too and other issues that were being raised about um, sexual offending and sexual politics and the behaviour of men in particular. And when people were saying, well, what's all the fuss about and having this all gone too far, she didn't always feel she had the right tools to answer that effectively and to put those people back in their box, quite frankly. So in a way, I think I kind of wrote it for her because once you understand the whole story of this, how much this happens, who's doing it, who they're doing it to, what it takes to investigate it, what it takes to get it through to court. Once you understand all of that, it's really easy to see how much work there is to do to make this better and fairer and make a fairer and safer community um, and how much we can all play a part in that. So it's called cool Whole Story for those two reasons. Uh, and may I say, hopefully it's not a dry read. It's not just about the, <laughs> the, the politics and the law. Um, I've used all the stories that I've been told by, by victim survivors, by offenders, by coppers like you, um, all the cases that I've worked on, um, men I work with in treatment. So I try to illustrate all these bits of the system and what isn't working through those stories, but also to talk about what we could do better because I think better is not that far yeah. around the corner. Yeah. And, you know, you're right, politics and law can be uh... – as dry as, but uh, knowing you, Patrick, it won't be very dry for very long. Um, so, so Patrick, why, who, who becomes a sex offender? Goodness, well, I suppose sex offending and, and relationship violence, more than any other type of crime, are everywhere in every culture, every country, every community, every socioeconomic group, uh, more than any other, and. So one of the answers to your question is they could be from anywhere. And I think in your introduction, you said a couple of things, one of which I agreed with strongly and one I want to take issue with you about. Um, the first is that they're often in positions of authority. And sometimes oh that, you know, <laughs> that, no, you're right about that. Yep. You're absolutely spironic. It could be a dad, a stepdad. You know, I've worked with people who were teachers, magistrates, um, police officers, you name it. Um, but I think the other word um, I take issue with is the monster word because I think sometimes when we when we see them as monsters even though what they do is so damaging and monstrous uh, in a way um, we take away from the fact that they these are men these are men yep and and this is coming out of our culture the way we grow up men I mean and women too and you talked about that before and and we can get into the detail of it but by and large this is a gendered crime where men do this to women and and I, I think in some ways particularly child molesters, for example, if you're a kid and you're being sexually abused by a man and you read a newspaper article or hear something on the telly that says uh, he's a monster, but he's the guy who told you how special you were and bought you gifts and manipulated you to see him as, as safe and trustworthy, that word gets in the way, you know, and I, and I think... So the reason I take issue with it, I think we need to stop looking for monsters and we need to start looking much more about us as men, and I include you know myself and any man listening to this, we need to think about how we all grew up, uh, what was good and what wasn't, and what needs to change about that. 
Yeah, and it's a good point, Patrick, and um, I, I take it on board. Be, I think that's what they say, isn't it? I'll take that on board. <laughs> but but I think it's really important that you point that you point that out because you're right. Monsters are um, that is a very very strong word, and a lot of these. Um, let's. Uh, as I was saying at the start, we're going to be talking about men today, um, but but most of these men that offend, they're offending for a reason and that reason might be something that they can't control, like a learned behaviour. And so, um, yes, I, I, I will not be using that word anymore. So, Patrick, why do sex offenders become sex offenders? Goodness me. Um, look, I think the first thing that has to be said here is for the vast majority of people who were offended against and just briefly looking at the numbers, worldwide, conservatively, we're talking about probably one in five, one in six girls, one in 12 to 15 boys, 20% of adult women, 5% of adult men. I mean, this is happening a lot. Um, but the vast majority of people it's happening to don't go and do it to somebody else. So that's the first really important thing to say. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, and the, the second thing is I, I think there's – it's easy to see it as learned behaviour, and I agree with you, it is. And I, I think – Far more often than not, the men that I've worked with, um, we want to say perhaps is is there something wrong, you know, with their brain matter, or, or is it hormonal, or are the genes different, or whatever? And really, none of that, none of that has been found, certainly not conclusively. And the majority of men that I've I've seen have been made, not not born into this by their environments, and not necessarily learned directly through sexual abuse. But when you look at the background, so when I was working with adolescents, for example, um, when there started to be other programs around so children's protection society in Barry street and, and uh, cicars and other people we all started to look at the kind of boys that were turning up in our programs and what we knew at that time was roughly 40 to 50 percent of them we knew had been sexually abused of course the number may have been higher than that but that, that's what we knew so what that told us is 50 to 60 percent of them hadn't been but then when you looked at their backgrounds the things that were more in their backgrounds than sex offending were family violence uh, physical abuse uh, being isolated from their peer group um, and uh, pornography use, amongst others. So what we know is this comes from a variety of places, problems with attachment, problems with family violence and abuses. And so if the fractures are there, there in people's lives, particularly, you know, in the before seven and in their around puberty, both really important times, then the vulnerability to behave in this way is is there. And that may or may not be acted upon in someone's life, but the vulnerabilities have been created. So who does or doesn't act um, on those vulnerabilities is, um, I don't know. And if I knew the answer to that, I'd be a very wealthy man. <laughs> so so what, we, what we also know is that the, the kind of clustering of uh, theories be, people develop out the, about the way the world works that are problematic for them. So, so for those of people listening who are kind of in, into this sort of stuff, if they're looking up theory of mind and how children's brains develop, the, the, the generalized idea is that when we grow up, we're kind of explorers in the world and we go out and our brain and our mind develop. So the, the brain develops 
functionally, and then the mind is the interpreter of what the brain uh, can do. And we go and explore our world, and then we begin to decide the way the world works and how we're going to interact uh, with other people and live in that world. And people who were working with sex offenders began to use some of those ideas and, and examine and interview the people they were working with to see how they viewed the world. And I use it in training because I think it's, it's simple, it's really clear um, and useful. And the five they came out with, so they started working with child molesters, and the five they came out with, and I'll put them in short form, are one, the adult world is a difficult place to navigate, particularly relationships. Secondly, they won't take responsibility for their behavior. So it's called uncontrollability in the theory that, you know, it's not my fault for X or Y reason. A sense of entitlement, um, and I feel this way, so I should be allowed to do what I want. Then the fourth one would be, for child molesters, the ability to persuade themselves that children are legitimate sexual objects of their desire, irrespective of community values. Um, and for adults, obviously, for those who um, sexually assault and rape adults, they will see, well, they will objectify women in particular ways and have thinking that goes with that objectification. And then the last of the five, and I think perhaps the most important in lots of ways, is it's called nature of harm in the in the, the way they see it in the literature. And what it means is when you listen to guys, it's the way they persuade themselves that what they're doing isn't hurting somebody else, particularly for child molesters. So the way they then say, well, she's too young to remember, or well, the kid kept coming around to my house, so it can't have been that bad. How do they justify and, and allow themselves to feel okay about what they're doing? Um, when it comes to rapists, incidentally, um, they might have a kind of, she deserves it kind of streak as well. It's not just about uh, justifying it in that way. But when you put those five things together, you put the top three, uh, feel entitled, don't take responsibility and, and struggle in the adult world. You pretty much got a recipe for problems in general. But when you add in, uh, persuade themselves about who is a legitimate sexual object of their desire and, and can minimize in, in their mind the damage that they're doing, that's when you begin to add in the problems um, uh, around sex offending and, and child molesting. Um, so that's kind of how this comes about. And then there are particular times when it appears people are more likely to put this into practice. And the shorthand of that is um, puberty. Uh, you see a lot of the boys that we got at MAPS, a male adolescent program for positive sexuality, a lot of the boys that we got there had begun their offending around 10, 11, 12, um, and we were getting them in the program around 14 or, or 15. So you saw a lot of them, and they tend to be offending yeah. other children in their um, local neighborhood, family, extended family, and so on. Then you get another group that starts in later adolescence and uh, teenage boys, and they're much more likely to offend against their peers. Um, now, interesting, and I'm sure you're going to ask me this later on, some of the boys that are offending at 11 and 12 show up in the second group. But I'm, I'm talking about when people start here, when the problems start. So you get those who start in puberty, then you get another group at later adolescence. Um, then interestingly, the biggest group starts in middle age, uh, and and the researchers had a very broad age range for middle age. So it's a middle age. So let's say, you know, 40 plus um you get a big group beginning there, a variety of offending against children and adults. And then there's a small but significant group um, at what's known as the end of working life, so um, 65 plus, and they are often offending against much, much younger children. 
And I think what those four age groups show, if you think about them, is puberty, late adolescence, middle age, end of working life are kind of crossroads times in, in this case, I'm talking about men, men's lives, where all those fractures I talked about before about where they're from and, and the abuses they may have had or the traumas they may have suffered and, and things that have gone wrong in their lives or poor choices they've made. Um, uh, those chickens come home to roost and, and, and their offending can, can begin at that time. Mm. Yeah, that it it makes a lot of sense, but it's it's frightening. Um, I, I suppose, yeah, it's hard to get my head around. And if it's hard for me to get my head around when I've listened to you, you know, so many times, it must be very hard for the general public to look. I, I think it's a little bit creepy that say a, a man at the end of his working life starts to. Um, offend against young kids. I, yeah. I just, I just can't. Oh, I don't know. Just I, very I, uncomfortable. I, it's very uncomfortable. And look, the way I mean, obviously, the way I'm talking about that, about it now, it's it's an interview and it's theory and it's words on a page and and I can make sense of it in that and I can make sense of it when I'm working with a guy in treatment or working on an investigation but in the moment if I and I do often because when you're ever training coppers they tend to ask the very blunt questions when they say <laughs> how can you understand a guy like that I think frankly, I, I don't you know when it gets to the point I can't see how you would do that in practice um but we know why people do it in general and and the science has now been around 20 30 40 years of good science around who these guys are and where they're from and why they do what they do and and importantly in the rest of this conversation i'm sure how, how they do that to victims uh, and survivors and you know what we can do about that but it's hard to get your head around it and for most people um the only times we really need to is for our own safety or the safety of people that we love. Um, and there are some things that, that we can do that, that make you know, ourselves and our, and our community safer. Mm. So, Patrick, do you think the ease of access to pornography has increased sex offending, in your opinion? I think the short answer to that has to be yes, um, with a range of kind of explanations and caveats because there's pornography and there's pornography. So are we talking here about child exploitation imagery? Are we talking about mainstream adult pornography? And I think we need to pick that apart a little bit. And then there's quite a lot of research, again, 30, 40 years of research about the impact of pornography on people and who it does and doesn't affect. Um, some of which I think has shifted slightly in recent years since the arrival of the internet. Um, well, look, I think the short answer is it's definitely had an impact. And if we take child exploitation imagery first, that's the, perhaps the most obvious one. Um, before the internet, those that material was shared by people who put adverts in the back of magazines and sent things through the post. And there was a lot of it then. Now, it is a multi-billion dollar industry with thousands upon thousands of images shared any moment around the world. And it has clearly increased um, the business of child exploitation imagery. Um, and what a disgusting phrase that is, people who are making money out of this. But in terms of how much is it impacting and creating people, I think the it's important to know the biggest group using child exploitation imagery already offending children. So 
it is adding to their nature of harm from before. So the more pornography that is out there, the more they can say, well, lots of other people are doing it, you know, and there's a lot of it there. There are also at the other end of the spectrum, people who only use child exploitation imagery. They have, because of the dangerous world, difficulty with relationships issue, no interest in any connection with people in the real world uh, or any kind of, for want of a better phrase, hands-on offending. And I apologize, it's not, I can't think of a better way of putting it, but offending in real life. And I think the real issue of what you're talking about here, the people in the middle, how much is this impacting people who um, may not previously have, have gone on to offend against people, but because of what they're looking at and moving on to harder and harder imagery, uh, loosening their inhibitions around certain behavior, seeing how much of it is out there, I think there is a clear argument that that has increased the amount of offending. I know other people will disagree with that, but in, in my view, there is clearly a group that has moved beyond um, their inhibitions because of that. With more mainstream pornography, um, I think well, let's look at adults and adolescents and children, the impact on that, because I think, I think it's different. Uh, look, there's lots of pornography out there. Um, there's feminist pornography, sex positive imagery and so on. But I think by and large, we're not talking about that here, are we? We're talking no. about the mainstream tube sites, the, yep. what, what is considered to be the bulk of what people are looking at. Yep. And look, there's a researcher that I've quoted in the book, a chap called Malamuth, and, and he He's been researching this for decades, and his view, um, and it's been backed up, I, I think, by a lot of other researchers in different countries, is for the majority of people, their attitudes and beliefs and behaviours are not impacted significantly by occasional, even mildly regular viewing of mainstream pornography. And he puts the figure at 60%. But what that means is 40% of the people watching this uh, are having their attitudes and beliefs uh, altered. And of the overall number, um, his research, he suggests, says around 7% of people watching that, um, it puts them into a bracket where they're a risk to others. Well, if you think about how many people are now online at any one time, 40% and 7% is a lot of people. And uh, that's a lot of attitudinal shift I think the other thing that's really changed in pornography, particularly in the last 10 years or so, is how much more aggressive it is. And if you had someone on to your podcast here who came from a sexual assault service or worked uh, as a forensic physician, for example, they would tell you that 10, 20 years ago, um, anal penetration wasn't um, particularly um, part of the experience of people coming through their doors who needed a forensic medical exam or, or sexual assault um, treatment but now it is and in the last 10 years choking behavior for example much much more common and both of those things the shift seems to coincide with that being much more prevalent um and if you look at the work of someone like marie crab um and uh, who educates uh, adults about how to work with young people around this um she would uh, i think not just talk about um anal penetration and choking behavior, but generalized aggression in pornography now, uh, where not the, the kind of old school was that it was unwanted behavior. And then as the aggression um, was a part of the sex, she would be seen to begin to enjoy it. Whereas now that's, which is bad enough, right? But where that shifted now is that the enjoyment is seen from the beginning of the scene as if it's kind of wanted behavior. Um, 
And if you look at um, young people, the impact on young people, it is clear that the communities and cultures that are coping best with this are those that spend a lot of time talking to young people about sex and sex education and not just um, the generalities of that, but um, relationships, consent, um, love and intimacy and connection, how to understand the commercial imagery of pornography and what it's selling you. And most young people talk about porn being part of their lives. It seems to be a kind of a generalized experience. Now, the vast majority of, of young people have seen pornography by the time they they are 18. And if you looked at somewhere like Sweden, for example, where they have generalized sex ed from kindergarten onwards, um, age appropriate, obviously, which will include um, all sorts of information about interpersonal relationships, managing conflicts, um, you know, dating, love, including porn. And Although young women in those cultures still talk about problems in, in the influencing of, of men's behavior or young men's behavior, um, it's not uh, as stark as it would be in cultures where they don't have regular uh, sex ed. Um, and I think talking about it now, I'm reminded there's a comedian I really like called Kate Willett, and I was listening to her the other day. And she says in one of her routines, um, she says, I don't. I don't watch porn myself, she says, but I'm pretty sure I know what's in it from what guys try to do to me. Uh, and she goes on <laughs> to five minutes of very funny uh, um, gags around really quite disturbing things she describes uh, around what, what's being done. So I think the overall answer to the question is, yes, it's having an impact. It's having a variety of impacts in different ways, depending on who's watching it, how young they're watching it, um, what kind of imagery they're watching. Um, and it's a debate that mm. we need to continue in the community. Um, yeah. We obviously need to be talking about this and it's very uncomfortable, isn't it, talking about like here we're talking quite openly about anal sex, about choking, but until we talk about it, we are not going to understand or learn how to um, manage it and talk about it with with younger people. Mm. So it, it does have to be spoken about. Um, Couldn't agree more. Um, so, Patrick, you may have answered this, but who is watching child porn? Who's watching child exploitation imagery? Yeah. Um, well, men. Men uh, is who... That's the first answer. So, um, I mean, there are women who are doing that too, but there's an interesting kind of general theme around women who sexually abuse is they are, first of all, much more likely to have victim histories than the men who do it, um, trauma histories, and they are also, uh, at least a third of them will be coerced into it uh, or co-offend with a male. They don't offend, uh, so only about 5% of, of uh, offenders that come before the system are female and I say about at least a third of those will be co-offending with, with males. If you looked at who's on the sex offender register uh, right now and that's those who offend against children, um, there'd probably be you know, 2 or 3% who, who'd be females. Um, in answer to who's watching uh, child exploitation imagery, uh, men, uh, men of all ages, uh, all backgrounds from all countries and all cultures. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Oh, gee. Um, 
Patrick, can you give us an insight into some of the issues and behaviours that constant exposure to pornography will raise in young children that are watching it? Um, well, I've never worked with young children, so uh, there are plenty of uh, people who have that you could get on from all sorts of programs. It's interesting, 20, 30 years ago. So when we started MAPS, 1993, uh, it was the first community-based program in Australia. There are now all sorts of programs working with young people with sexually abusive behaviours, offending behaviours, children with problem sexual behaviours, particularly in Victoria. We're very well resourced here. We've got therapeutic treatment orders for young people to get them into early intervention programs and so on. So um, there are lots of people who can answer this question much better than I can. Mm. But in general, I think anybody listening in will realise the reason that this imagery says if you're under 18, you shouldn't be watching it is because we don't consider young people to be prepared for uh, the impact of this imagery, the visceral impact on the way they feel. um, And it will be no surprise that young people who are given access to this imagery without certainly those that don't have sex education that includes pornography as a part of it, um, if they're coming across this material, they, they will struggle. Um, and they're also, not that I want to freak people out, but, but you know, there's, there are mechanisms um, in, um, in our brains and in the brains of young people um, called mirror neurons. And the idea of, of, of mirror neurons is we watch things and we put ourselves in the position of the person doing that and we assess whether that's something that we would want to be doing. Now, in childhood and adolescence, particularly, you know, pre seven or eight, they are going all the time. And so the, you can imagine the impact on mirror neurons of young people, for example, if they're having regular uh, access to pornography um, and particularly with young people in general, if if what they're accessing comes with no adult explanation, support, analysis, help. Um, yeah, so so the um, it leaves a legacy um, for young people. And the more it, it, it is online and interactive, the more visceral that is. And the idea of mirror neurons really is that, that it allows us to take the place of that person and experience what it might, might be like to be them. And, you know, young people should not be experiencing those thoughts and those feelings at those ages when they're completely incapable of putting them in context. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the impact. And I'm sure you're going to say like, what can we do about that? And I'm going to go back to the same point really is talking to young people about sex and sexuality and relationships and consent and pleasure and all those things as early as possible in age appropriate ways, right the way through, um, into adulthood and supporting them with that. And it needs to include uh, pornography because it's not going away. And as one uh, feminist pornographer I was listening to being interviewed a, a while ago, and she said, um, pornography is sex education, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and I think on that very pragmatic note, you know, that there is a truth there that's irrefutable. Yeah. Uh, it's not going away and young people are accessing it and we need to help them with that. And when you say we need to help them with that, that was going to be my next question. So let's say there's some parents out there who um, are concerned 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That maybe their child is watching pornography or they're accessing it somehow. Would you suggest a parent talk to them about um, about? what's happening or would you suggest they go and seek professional help? Well, both. And I think check out. So I'm in uh, our colleague, my colleague and friend Marie Crabb, I would go first of all to her site and have a look um, and then look at the links from there about how many different resources there are for parents from kindergarten age appropriate materials uh, about, you know, our bodies and, um, yeah, there's a lot of good materials out there. There are a lot of good things that are resources made for parents, and there are a lot of resources um, for parents who want some additional um, external kind of help uh, and, and support with that. So I would suggest go to It's Time We Talked, uh, look at that, see the resources that are available, uh, and start the conversations. Mm, yeah. Fantastic. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A T R E O N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much. Um, I've learned a lot of things from you, Patrick, but one of them is that there's little truth in the saying that once a sex offender, always a sex offender, and you did uh, talk about that before. How many sex offenders are rehabilitated to the point that they can lead a relatively normal life or a very normal life? Um, wow. That's a very hard question to answer. Uh, and, look, I think there's always going to be a vulnerability there. I mean, the vulnerability that 
and the line that they crossed. I mean, we were talking before about how shocking this is. That That is a, such a massive line to cross that um, if you've crossed it once, there are clearly going to be vulnerabilities for crossing it again on different levels. Yep. Having said that, um, like one of the things, let's talk about adolescence first, I think, because that's really important that this idea, just because you started um, that kind of behavior in childhood or adolescence, does that give you a lifetime legacy? And, and, and the answer is no, it doesn't. And even though we've kind of always thought, as you said, once a sex offender, always a sex offender, it turns out that that's not true. And the evidence suggests that of those who come before the system in adolescence, for sexual offences, about 20% show up in the adult system. Now, for the cynical listening, of course, that might, they may have got smarter at it, they may not have got caught, that finger might be higher, blah, blah, blah. But even if it is, um, I think that's significantly lower than most people would think it, it is. Uh, so what we found out really is that there used to be the thought that somehow sex offenders were different from every other kind of offender. And the more the research is done, the more it shows that they're actually quite similar and that teenagers who are offending, whilst they can be very dangerous and damaging in those teenage years. I mean, I've got to film my show in training of kids and I'm asking them all the same question, which is when you were offending, do you think you could have stopped on your own? And every single kid says a version of now, nah, I don't think I could have done. So they need help and they need intervention. Um, but, we also know that teenagers in general desist from this just like they do from all sorts of other kinds of offending. So they, they, they get jobs and um, they grow up and they get relationships and they learn to cope. Um, and it's not a life sentence in the way that we thought it was. Having said that, uh, although only 20% of them show up um, for sex offending, uh, I think the figure is a 45% was about half show up for non-sexual offending. Okay. So you can see that the, whatever led them to the offending in the first place, there's a, there are still problems there, but not necessarily sex offending. Mm. Um, what we also know is that intervention with young people in particular works. And whilst there will always be those that you can't get to, um, you can't reach, will not change, will need monitoring and supervision and incarceration, um, the majority don't. And, the, and they can go on and lead healthy and productive lives. Uh, the same is less true of adults. So the recidivism figures, um, the reoffending figures are, are not so good um, for adults, but they're still okay. Um, so if they are caught as early as possible, if we can uh, intervene, if we can both support and hold people accountable in the community, then the picture is not as bleak as a lot of people might think. And um, I think some of the ways we're going about it, there's some really interesting things out in the community now. So, for example, in, in Germany, they've got a project called Duncanfeld. And what they're doing is they're advertising to people out in the community because they think, you know, a significant proportion. I think they put the figure at 250,000 German men, they think, probably have some kind of sexual interest in children that they may or may not have put into practice. And they're advertising to those men and basically saying, before you do something that damages another, um, come and get help for that. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, we've got um, groups called um, COSIS, Circles of Support and Accountability. And they're community groups working with men who've coming out of the system after they've been in jail or, or on probation, say, for sex offending. And support is an important word and accountable is an important word. So they're recognising that what people need to reintegrate is someone to call when they're struggling, but also someone to hold them to account and, 
you know, call the cops when they think there are problems. And so there are lots of strategies that we can put in place. Um, there are lots of ways that we can make our community safer in general uh, and understand who's going to be a problem down the track and who is not. And how can we, when people come out of the system, because most people are either on probation or in prison for fairly short periods of time, they all come back out and live with us. I mean, if we were in Norway, for example, their entire prison system is set up on the basis that if people go to prison, they're going to come out and be our neighbor. So we should deal with them as if they're currently our neighbor and how we would like, you know, to deal with them if they live next door. Um, I think whilst punishment is really important, holding people accountable and consequences is really important. That idea of they're going to come out and live amongst us by and large, how can we best manage them to make ourselves and the people we love safe? Those are difficult conversations and not ones we have often enough um, mm. here in Australia. Yeah, you're right. Um, I must admit, you know, I, I think that everyone deserves, well, most people deserve a second chance. But I must admit, I think most of us wouldn't want uh, a convicted sex offender living next door. They can live next door to someone else, but not to us. It, uh, yeah, true, yeah, true. Yeah. Although, you know, most, most offending isn't reported. So the vast majority of sex offenders out in the community are not known by anyone. So not that I want to freak people out, but they're everywhere. They're in our communities already. They are our neighbours. Um, so how we then keep children safe, um, improve the protections that we place around them, um, how we change, you know, the way women are treated in our culture, the way, um, you know, people from marginalised uh, groups are treated, all these things are things we can do about on a daily basis. And that just focusing on the men who we already know have offended um, probably gives us a bit of a false sense of, um, of, of security. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um you're not meaning to put the fear of God into people, but my goodness, I think you might be. No, no, no. <laughs> no we shouldn't say that. Um, yeah, no. No. Um, you established and Most people are lovely. Yes, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. uh, you, you established and ran um, the MAPS program that you've talked a fair bit about today, the Male Adolescent yeah. Program for yeah. Positive Sexuality. You said you ran that for 14 years uh, working to rehabilitate young people, uh, 10 to 21 years who sexually offend. Now, that program had an extraordinary high success rate. I think it was 95% one analyst uh, analysis found in stopping uh, recidivism amongst attendees. Why was that program so successful where others weren't or others haven't been? Well, um, well, I'd like to claim that we were sexual in some way, but actually um, there are lots of programs that show figures like that, particularly with young people, as I was saying before, um, not quite uh, so high with, with adults, but particularly with young people. And, and look, what, what all those problems, uh, all those programs probably have in common is um, that uh, they treat the young people with respect and compassion, but they're also uh, clear in their values and the way they um draw young people to the consequences of their behavior, to the damage that they've done. They hold a mirror up to them uh, and uh, like lots of kids would say, they'd rather be in juvenile justice than come to a treatment program because looking in the mirror is not comfortable. 
So you have to take them to look in the mirror, but you have to do it in a way that says, you know what, you can live without this in the future if you X, Y, and Z. And then I won't bore you with all the minutiae of the way different programs operate. Um, but if you've got that balance between uh, compassion and clarity of values and clarity of consequences, and you help young people see um, what they've done and the damage it's done and how to live better lives in the future and not hurt other people. Most programs who do that well um, come up with similar figures um, for young people. Um, yeah, so look, I'm a huge advocate for early intervention and, and always have been. And I think Victoria does it pretty well, actually, in the majority of kids now. So MAPS was, was for kids that got into the youth justice system. And um, it still exists, incidentally, but it sees many fewer kids because we're catching them earlier. And early intervention and therapeutic treatment orders made a big difference here, um, as they have wh wherever early intervention with young people is being done, is having an impact on you know who is going to be a, a problem in the future and who's not. Because one of the other bits of the answer to your earlier question about um, who becomes a sex offender and how do they do that, what we do know is kids that don't get intervention uh, in in childhood and adolescence are more likely to be a problem as adults than those that don't. Uh, most of them will still desist, um, but early intervention is without question uh, the way to go as soon as we see problems. Mm. So how do you treat a sex offender? Um, the short version is uh, you, well, first of all, we need to encourage more people to report because um I think, in a way, a lot of the problems that we've currently got in the community, and I know I'm coming to your question in a roundabout way, but I'll get to treatment, but I think a lot of the problems are that we still don't really understand sex offending enough. We're still too judgmental of, of victims. We don't understand, well, why is she still in a relationship? Well, why did the kid keep going around to his house? Like, why weren't there any injuries? And um, you know, why, why didn't she tell someone? All those kinds of questions. We've got so many questions uh, of victims. So. Before anything else, I think we need to take some responsibility and say we need more people to report. And the reason, by and large, that they don't is they're afraid of how we'll listen when they when they do report. And then, if if more people reported, um, then you know, gradually over time, I think we'd begin to have much much more impact on that. Um, because first of all, we only catch a certain proportion and we only treat a certain proportion. When we do get them, then the first thing that we need to do is go uh, to their thinking and their belief system and how they currently view their offending and kind of work back from there to how it all began and then work with them around uh, changing their thinking, changing their, their, their values, the way they justify their behavior. Um, and if you think about so if you've got uncontrollability and entitlement, well, those need to be, in a sense, got rid of. Uh, but if you've got the dangerous world, like I'm struggling relationships and it's difficult, um, you know, and, and so some child molesters will, will, will say, you know, kids understand me and I understand them. Well, what they really mean is I'm no good, um, you know, with uh, relationships with my peers. So you need to help people with their self-esteem and self-confidence and communication skills. So, so treatment is a balance of chipping away and getting rid of the, 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 the entitlements and the uncontrollabilities and the bullshit uh, 
cognitive distortions and justifications and minimizations and building up to, well, this is the way to treat people and this is these are successful strategies for in relationships and how to communicate and so on. So all treatment is about it's carrot and stick, really. All treatment is carrot and stick, whether it's in a prison or community, young person or, or adult, so that that person not only understands how much we say enough, stop, you cannot do this again, but we accept that you live amongst us and these are the rules and we want you to live amongst us with those rules and treat people in this particular way. So to balance up those two. And all that would be a lot easier to do if we had a community that totally understood uh, grooming, coercive control, um, the manipulations of offenders, and made it as easy as possible for victim survivors to report and come forward and tell their stories. Mm. And we are getting a lot better at... um uh, treating victims with, uh, well, the way we treat victims now compared to when I first started is completely different. Yeah. And I must admit, um, we uh, ran a, I was involved in a training program that you were involved in a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know if you've heard, but we got a response back from a an investigator who was oh, yeah. yeah who was um, who did an interview with a victim, and right. she said that the information that she got using the whole story concept was incredible, and it just oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, and and I think that's what's important for. Uh, people out there that are starting to get into that field, this whole story concept, it just works and you get so much more information. And I just think the the victims and survivors of sex abuse that are, are now going to the police, the police are, are trained, they want to listen, they want to hear about what happened, like it's not just about the offence, it's about everything else and it just, I think they feel a lot more believed now, they feel a lot more comfortable, they feel like we're interested, which we are. It's just the training is so much better, so much better. Well, that's that's really good to hear and it's, isn't it interesting we both say we, even though we don't work for Victoria Police anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. And there's a kind of ownership of that. No. Yeah, and... and um, because it was it was important, and I think look, not all police forces have have done it, and there are still there are still obviously you know improvements, and, and and we can get better. But by and large, it's been a really big shift. And I don't know if you've done an episode yet, but if you haven't, you should about how victims used to be dealt with in the early days of you being uh, a police officer, and how they now are. Because I think just that story alone is such a huge change. And mm. like I say, there's lots of there's lots of improvements still to go and lots of cultural shifts still to go. But but um, I think policing in general and certainly here in Victoria has come a long way in the last 10, 15 years. Oh, it has. A, a measurable, really, mm. which is which has got to be a good thing for all those things you're talking about, the fact that we are now starting to talk about it more, accepting it more, trying to understand why. And, uh, oh, I cannot believe all the way through this interview this morning, I'm thinking to myself, you know, those kids that are maps at, at maps, you know, yeah. they are not monsters, and mm. I, I, I cannot um, 
the the fact that I have used that word, I can't take it out. But, <laughs> but well, I could, but I'm not going to because I think. <laughs> You know, we all are learning every day and I just think to myself, um, I'm not going to call them monsters anymore. I, I think underneath it all I might feel like they they are, but yeah. they're not. You can't get away from that feeling and the anger and the disgust. Yeah. And, and um, But I think in some ways it's just too comfortable a word because yeah. it stops us going, my God, how many men are doing this? You know, it's just. Yeah, yeah. Mm, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that there's some offenders who can't be rehabilitated. Like I'm thinking the likes of, say, yeah. Sean yeah. Price, uh, yeah. I don't know, Peter Dupas, Derek Percy. Like what do we do with offenders like that? Um, is Derek, Derek Percy killed children, didn't he? I, I, I don't know enough about him, but I suspect the, what, the point you're making is true. Yeah. But someone like Dupas, well... He was in the mainstream prison system, so clearly was not considered to be, you know, criminally insane for want of a better, a very old-fashioned expression. Sean Price, I think, is in is in um, the forensic care yes, service. Yes, he is. So, yep. so he'll, yeah, so he'll be seen to have, um, you know, psychological or psychiatric uh, issues. Anyway, the, the short answer to your question: Are there people who can't be rehabilitated? Yes. What should we do about them? Um, well, first of all, catch them as soon as we possibly can. And look at maps. The vast majority of kids that came through the program, I'm sure it's the same. There are lots of programs here now running Sakaza and, and, and others uh, running. I'm sure if you looked at, at the kids that come through those doors and matched them against kids in the local schools of the same age, you couldn't pick them out. Hmm. But the staff there will know that, and we knew at MAPS every year, maybe one or two boys would come through who were going to be a real problem and yeah. an ongoing problem. Yeah. And, yeah. and the issue then is what do you do about that? Uh, you manage, you supervise, you let the service system know. Um, back when we started, most programs kind of ran a confidentiality sort of issue, and we went, hang on a minute, we know about this boy I, I pretty much no. sometimes – you knew exactly what he was going to do and who he was going to do it to. So what do you do? You call the, you call the police um, and you make sure that there's, you know, surveillance and monitoring. And, and so we need to um, get to them as, as soon as possible, have people report as early as possible, and then bearing in mind that we should be giving people the, the opportunity to change and to shift for those that don't, they'll end up in the system. And we've now got quite strong uh, orders here sort of, um, extended uh, supervision orders of various kinds um, that allow greater flexibility that, to monitor people. And you know from working at VicPol how much, you know, intelligence uh, is gathered about people who are considered to be higher risk and how much time and effort is now spent in, in, the, in the justice system, corrective services and policing, looking after people who are high risk out in the community and making sure that we limit the opportunities as much as we possibly can. That's mm. what you do with them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I suppose we've gone over this, but I was just going to say, what would be the main driver of a sex offender? Is it um, power, rage, entitlement, pleasure? What would be the, is there a main one? Um, I, I think you've mentioned the two, um, the two of the main ones. So, so um, power and control uh, and, and sex. I mean, I think it's, 
there's been a debate about whether, you know, rape and sexual assault, for example, are about power and control or are they about sex? And the answer, I think, is both. You know, it's the expression of power and control through you know, sexual aggression. Um, my old boss in England, when I first started working in treatment, used to say that every story of the offenders that we work with uh, will have a combination of power, control, anger, fear, and sex uh, mixed in together in different combinations with each guy. And uh, I mean, he was being a bit offhand when he said it, but I think there's an element of truth in that. You will find those things in every story. And and in terms of the theory we talked about before, you know, um, the uncontrollabilities and entitlements and so on, you find different combinations of, of those in in across all sex offenders, child molesters and, and rapists. They've also been used to study uh, female offenders, uh, family violence perpetrators, um, uh, people who kill and so on, and, and found that the, the, the core constructs kind of go across everybody. There's lots of differences, you know, in, in, um, obviously in each uh, particular person, but the core constructs are, are the same, you know. So that's my answer. <laughs> Does a sex offender normally start off with, say, exposing themselves and then, I don't know, begin to fantasise a bit more about a serious sex offence, uh, I don't know, progressing to actually committing offence? Yes, some some do and some don't um, because actually you've picked out uh, people uh, who expose themselves and actually often you'll find that's all they're doing. Um, so there's kind of two groups really. Um, uh, there are those who expose themselves and that's all they're doing. And then there's a sort of subset of those who are both exposing themselves and are um, going to use that as a way of perhaps um, uh, following people, stalking them and going on to contact offending. Um, I think the older thinking was that everybody would kind of start with the minor offending and move to the more serious offending. And the, again, the more the research goes on, the more it shows that's that's only one type of offender. Um, lots of them will, for example, uh, they used to think that they were all specialists, like if they offended boys, that's who they offended. And, you know, even since the middle 80s, that's that the research then showing that, that that's wrong. There'll be those who are offending boys, they'll also be offending girls. And there are those who are offending adults, uh, children who are also offending adults. And, and there are family violence perpetrators who are not only violent towards adults, but also violent towards children, also sexually abusing both adults and children. So there's a lot more now understood about where these offenders cross over, where there are similarities and where there are differences. Um, as we're getting more sophisticated in the way I think that we respond to all of them, both investigators and people treating them and so on. Um, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but hopefully I did. <laughs> no, no, you did. You did. I'm just thinking now, what is it about men exposing themselves? Like what What would be the main driver of a man exposing himself? Would, would that be, say, shock or pleasure? Like, is it any of those? Attention. I think, I think underneath it all, it, it's attention. And if you think about, you know, not being competent or not feeling competent in adult relationships with closeness and intimacy, in some ways, I, I think it seems so ludicrous that you would decide, anyone would decide to do that as a way of being seen and being noticed. And, and, and um, but I remember one, one young kid was he 15 or 16 telling me that he genuinely thought that that's the way he could attract 
women to want to have sex with him. So some of them have oh, distorted God. thinking that's really very way out there. Um, and for others, it's a much uh, sadder, more sort of miserable, look at me, pay attention to me. And then, as I say, there's another group where I want to see the fear in your eyes. I want to see the shock on your face. I get a kick out of that. It makes me feel powerful and in control. So you get a variety of motivations with all different types of offenders. And look, for, for people listening um, who are interested in that, there's so much theory out there about offender typologies and what what types of um, men who commit certain kinds of crimes will or won't commit others and so on. There's, there's research. Oh. Mm tons of it uh, out there now uh, for those that are interested. Mm. So um, coming to a close, Patrick, how how do you manage the stress of what you do? Like this, this whole, um, the subject matter could be very um, uh, confronting. I mean, I know you've done it for a long time, but sometimes when we've done something for a long time, we fall into that habit of like, that's just how it is. That's what I do. Yeah. How do you how do you manage that that sort of um, the emotions that go with what you do? Well, the first answer is um, I have sought help uh, on a reasonably regular basis for it. Um, and I noticed, for example, becoming a parent, it was like doing work in treatment with offenders as a single man is very different from a man in relationship or, uh, you know, with kids. So, um, there've been different times where it's been easier or harder, depending on that. Uh, also I have moved a bit, I've taken quite a long time in the treatment field, but, but, but moved from adults to working with adolescents, although I was still working in the adult jails at that time. And. And then there was a point where I thought, I just can't hear these stories anymore. And there was, fortunately, yeah. uh, work in policing. So working in investigations is a different, as you know, uh, working in policing is quite high pressure and high stress. Um, and there's a lot of volume of work. But in one sense, it's sort of one step removed from being in treatment. I wasn't talking to the offenders in the same way. I was helping you guys to interview them, which is uh, kind of slightly removed. And then... Now, after a while, that becomes stressful, and obviously, it's good to good good to um, you know do a different uh, a different thing. Like in this case, for me, it was I'm now working at Melbourne University with the students, trying to improve the responses of higher education institution, in particular Melbourne Uni, to uh, what's happening um, in the student population, and also doing trainings with, with with you and writing books and trying to do more of a variety of things. So I'm not constantly listening to the same kind of story. So so I think it's a combination of you know, making sure that, that you uh, keep a variety in it. And then, um, look, I think some, some of, the, some of the, the research suggests, you know, there are people who are better suited to certain bits of this than others. For example, and I know this is an, a, an issue really close to your heart, I don't think I could work in, in one of the units dealing with child exploitation material on a daily basis. It just would be too much for me. So you've got to pick the thing you think you could cope with. And, and whenever I worked on those jobs, I would always say, like, you know, do I have to, what, do I have to look at this? Do I have to see this? Um, and nearly always, you know, you do, but, but how do you then manage that? And, and, and then you need to know when the cracks are appearing. And to go and see someone or, or sort of that. And again, I know these issues are very dear to your heart and you've spoken a lot about them in the past. Yes. Um, 
I would say I've gone through periods of time where I, I never got to the edge, but I could see it from where I was. And then I needed to go and do something else about that. And for a lot of people who are coping, it isn't necessarily the work they're in. It's the way the work goes, like there's too much of it or it's not managed well by senior people or there's other conflicts in life or your home life isn't going well or whatever it is that those things become a combination of problems um, and you've got to recognize that when it's time to step away. Um, and then the last thing I'd want to say in more positive note is I, I feel purposeful and i know again i know this from working with you you got a passion for this you got a passion for for making sure people you know our communities are safer and this gets investigated well and i feel like a lot of that you've got a sense of purpose in what you're doing and a curiosity about people and stories they're very protective and so keeping those two things together and if i didn't ever feel that it I was, you know, what I was doing was worthwhile, I'd go and do something else. Yeah, such a great answer, Patrick. Thank you for your honesty. Um, so, Patrick, uh, thanks for, you know, everything that you do in helping all of us trying to understand sex offending just a little bit more at, as you've um, shown us today. It's a not. It is a minefield um, and by learning about concerning behaviours, we just might be able to recognise and address it before another person becomes another victim. Uh, and so in closing, where you, you've mentioned today uh, Anne Crabbs, was it Anne Crabb? Is that the name? Marie. Marie, Marie Crabb. Crabb. Yeah. It's Time We Talked is, her, is the website. Yeah, and there are lots of people like um you can find lots of links from her site to other people because there's lots of people working in that field now with different age groups, uh, with different materials for parents, which is what you were asking me about at that time. Yep. Yeah. So I, I would go to Marie's site first and then go from there. All right. And uh, lastly, we'd better give your uh, book a plug. Where can people order your book? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Great. Thank you. Well, at the moment, so um, it's coming out in the UK. Um, it's published by Jonathan Cape, who are part of Penguin Random House. So at the moment, you can order it in the UK, but it's officially out at the end of October here in Australia. So um, Penguin Australia will, you can pre-order it from Penguin Australia here, um, or hopefully it'll be in bookshops when we're actually ever allowed to go back into a bookshop. Uh, you'll be able to buy it in a bookshop um, from the end of October. Uh, here, the, um, the whole story. Okay. Yeah. Well, good luck with everything, Patrick. Again, it's been an absolute Thanks, pleasure uh, talking to you. Have a lovely day and back to your home, back to your homeschooling, Patrick. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Bye. See ya. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.